you for your singing this morning. Thank you. All right, good morning, church. E-kids, you guys can be dismissed. The rest of us are going to be in Philippians chapter number 1 this morning. Philippians 1. So there's a, there's a special kind of prayer in the book of Psalms called imprecatory prayers. I don't know if you've heard of them, but it's when you, you pray against a particular person. Um, you pray against evil. And, and it's my personal opinion that whoever thought losing an hour and moving the clocks forward was a good idea. Uh, we ought to pray imprecatory prayers against them this morning. Because if you have a family, if you are here today, you have done well. Uh, so congratulations. Um, I'm going to try to be short so that we can all go home and take a nap. Um, that's my goal, is uh, to get through this in record time this morning. But uh, I believe God has, uh, has really something for us uh, this morning. Um, we've been in the book of Philippians, and this morning I will talk to you about two struggles that I have in my life. Things that, since I've become a believer, things that war within my soul, um, they, it's been said that you struggle either with God's sovereignty or with his goodness. Um, and, and so I think some people, uh, what we've seen so far in the book of Philippians is God's sovereignty on full display. And we say, what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that he is in control of everything, that nothing happens that's outside of his will, that, that he is the ruler, he is the supreme, he is uh, above all. And that everything that happens, happens through him. And so we've seen that in the book of Philippians. The formation of the church happened by the sovereignty of God. The apostle Paul went to Macedonia. Uh, There was a group of believers there. Lydia's eyes were open. That was the result of the Lord's sovereignty in that, opening her eyes that she would hear the word and she would receive it. She in turn opens up her home. Uh, We see the Philippian jailer come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's a result of God sovereignly working in those circumstances. Uh, everything about the beginning of the church there at Philippi happened as a result of God being in control. And uh, we saw that climax even in the greeting of the Apostle Paul where he prays and, and says this and, and says that in verse number two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we said in the book of Philippians that God's sovereignty is on full display and that he is the Lord of every room, that everything belongs to him. That all of creation, it basically, scre- that Jesus over all of creation screams mine, that there is nothing that escapes him. Sometimes we struggle to see God's sovereignty. When I think of the, the Bible example, the story that comes to mind in this is the story of Jacob. Are you guys familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau? So circumstances come into the life of Jacob, and Jacob really struggles with his lot in life. Like he doesn't, I mean, from the time that he is born, what is he doing? He's trying to pull his brother Esau like back into the womb because he was not content being born second. He wanted to be first. So like Ricky Bobby, if you're not first, you're what? You're last. So that was how Jacob kind of viewed life. And so he tries to pull his brother back into the womb and then he gets married. 
And uh, marriage doesn't go so well for him, right? He gets tricked by Uncle Laban. He marries the wrong gal, and he's not content with her. Uh, So he doesn't like Leah. And so he goes and he works a little bit longer in order that he might get Rachel. And then he's continuing just time and time again. He's feuding in his life, wrestling against the circumstances that God has chosen for him. But the story really climaxes in in this there's this scene at the end where Jacob finally wrestles with the right person he wrestles with God himself because God was the one who had chose these circumstances for Jacob God was the one that chose the order in which he would be born God was the one who set him up with Leah instead of Rachel it was God that was at work in his life orchestrating all of these things and finally he wrestles with the one who really was in control with the right circumstance. And as he wrestles with God, God maims him and he he takes and, and wounds him in his hip. So now that he goes back to face Esau, who he believes is angry because he stole his birthright, right? Again, trying to weasel or manipulate or, or try to uh, twist or conform circumstances into his favor. And God maims him that he must go face his brother without a leg to stand on other than his confidence and trust that God would work it out for his good. And so some of us, we wrestle with the sovereignty of God, that God is over everything. But I'll tell you, that's not my struggle. I've never really found it difficult to believe that there is a God and I'm not him, as Rudy says, right? In the movie Rudy, there is a God and I'm not him. That seems to come pretty easy for me as I see creation and as I just see the glory that's all around me. But there's a bigger problem that we struggle with as Christians. It's one that is actually unique to Christians. And it's the goodness of God. It's the problem of evil in this world. The good things, or or bad things rather, happen to good people. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I've been confronted with this as a pastor. And not just a pastor, but just with family. Uh, circumstances at work. Yesterday I was at my brother-in-law's and I was confronted with it. Uh, My brother-in-law is an amazing believer, amazing man of God. Um, He's a pastor at Trinity uh, there in Fairmont and uh, we were sharing about what God is doing here at Emmanuel and he was rejoicing and we just had a great time at my nephew's birthday party. As we were getting ready to leave, they have a, a picture board with all these pictures and I spotted the picture of a young lady that I knew um, who was special to their family. Her name was Hira. And uh, Hira was an amazing young lady. Hira grew up Muslim, um, and she rejected the Muslim faith. She was disowned by her parents. She converted to Christianity, and, uh, and she followed Jesus. She got married. She has, I think, three or four beautiful children, three beautiful kids. And uh, Hira departed this earth a couple months ago, I think, um, as a result of cancer. And as I looked at her picture, again, I could feel welling up inside of me just an anger and a questioning that says, God, I know that you're in control, but how in the world is that good? I mean, how is it good to leave three children motherless? How is it good to oppress somebody that seeks to do your will? who wants to advance the gospel, who has lost everything on your account, who lost her family, who converted her faith, and I just got angry inside. And it's not the sovereignty of God that I struggle with. It's that God is good that sometimes in my darkest moments I have trouble believing. 
The book of Philippians up until this point has been beautiful and it's been joyful and it's been happy. And we're about to ruin all that. And so you've got the scriptures. Go ahead and open them. Philippians chapter number one. We're going to look at verse number 12. Philippians 1 and uh, verse number 12 says this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, only in, the, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Father God, we come to you this morning trusting that you are sovereign over every circumstance in our lives. But God, you are not just sovereign alone, you are good. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, move me out of the way this morning, that we might answer this question of, of your goodness And it might be confirmed in our hearts this morning that through the life of the Apostle Paul, we might get a glimpse of how you work together things for our good in this present life and how you'll bring that to culmination in glory. God, I pray that we would leave today worshiping and praising you and glorifying you for you are both sovereign and you are also good. God, I pray that your word would speak today, that it would be impressed upon our hearts and grave, God, that when trials and circumstances come, We might count it all joy, knowing the good things they work in our lives. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So the goodness of God is a particularly difficult question for those of us who believe that he is in control of everything. Because God is in control of everything, then the bad things that come into our lives also have to come from his hand. You see, this isn't really, the problem of evil is not a question that the the person who does not have belief in God should really wrestle with. Because the naturalist would say that it's just the natural law at work, right? It's survival of the fittest. And so when someone like my friend Hira gets cancer, it's nothing more than a genetic lottery. And so she had bad genes, and so she succumbed to bad genes. And that's a grace, because now those bad genes are not going to be carried forward, and it's not going to limit our growth as a people, as humans. In fact, if you're not a believer, then when you look at the problem of evil, you say it's not evil at all. But as a a philosopher once said, whatever is must be right. That if it is here and now and it's a reality in our world, then there's nothing wrong with it. It's to be accepted. It's just the way it is. My boss likes to put it this way. It is what it is. And so the problem of evil and the the problem of the goodness of God is something unique and, and something that only a Christian really should wrestle with. Because if you don't believe God is sovereign, then it's just the luck of the draw. It's the nature. It's the law of nature. And it is what it is. But for the Christian who believes that all things happen through the hands of God and that God is sovereign and that he's the Lord of every room, the goodness of God is a real question and the problem of evil. And the Apostle Paul is about to give us a lesson on how he approached 
evil circumstances in his life. He writes this in chapter number 1, verse number 12. He begins with, I want you to know. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul in all of the prison epistles gives kind of an update about where he's at and what's going on in his life. We said already that this is a missionary letter, and so he's writing to a supporting church, and it's only fitting that he would give a little bit of an update about what's going on and what the, what the gospel is accomplishing uh, there and through his work. But what's unique about this is it's actually the longest update that the Apostle Paul gives, and it's also its position is unique. Usually the Apostle Paul saved talking about himself and his ministry for the end of the book. And here in Philippians, it's reversed. The Apostle Paul talks about his unique situation in the beginning of the book. And so it only stands to reason that there must be, a, must be some reason that the Apostle Paul would find it absolutely urgent that he address his current circumstances both at length and immediately in the opening of the book. And so with, with uh, I think, as a plea, he says, I want you to know, brothers. He said, what is it that you, that you want us to know, Paul? That what has happened to me, and what is it that's happened to the Apostle Paul? Does that ever, ever seem like God finds the most strategic way to scuttle his work? You ever have a vacation Bible school and the day of the carnival it rains and you're like, come on, God, like this makes no sense. Like we're here trying to do your work and and you're really going to thwart it? Like it just, I mean, does it seem like God comes against the work of the gospel at times? And so the Apostle Paul says, it's really important for me to let you know that what has happened to me and what it is that had happened to him is he had faced every difficult circumstance and trial and it had seemed like God was in opposition to the work of Paul. I mean, if you go back, last night I read through Acts 24, 25, 26, and just look at what the Apostle Paul endured for the sake of the gospel. I mean, it seemed like every time the Apostle Paul tried to move to advance the gospel, God resisted it. And so you look and and say, okay, the Apostle Paul, what did he endure? Well, he was shipwrecked. He was snake-bitten, he was betrayed, he was mistried, uh, he was left in prison for two years for no good cause. Not only that, but then finally he gets to Rome, and here we find that he is chained, in chains, it says. And literally what that means is that there was an imperial guard, Caesar's guard, and Paul is actually chained to this guard 24-7, 365. He has no privacy. He can't go to the restroom on his own. He is locked next to a guard at all times. And so the church at Philippi, hearing the circumstances of Paul, they dispatch Epaphroditus to go and bring some relief, whatever they could get together, some type of goodie basket that would help serve him in this time of trial. And so as Epaphroditus goes and witnesses and sees the condition of the Apostle Paul, it only makes sense that he would be discouraged, right? That as he sees Paul, the great apostle, chained in prison, and he sees the conditions that he's existing in, he sees the lack of freedom that he has, that Epaphroditus is going to make a beeline back to the church at Philippi and say, listen up, Paul is in a bad, bad way. Paul is in trouble. And if Paul is in trouble, it only makes sense that the gospel is in trouble. Because the Apostle Paul, we like to think of him as a teacher, but not only was he a teacher, but he was like the chief missiologist, the strategist of the greatest movement of all time. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul was such an amazing missionary that he was able to show up in pretty much any metropolitan area, debate some, and get a big enough following that by the time he left that area, there were enough people to have a church. That's amazing. And so when Epaphroditus goes and he sees the Apostle Paul locked up in prison, he is beside himself. He's running back to the church at Philippi, and he's saying, you're not going to believe what has happened. Not only is Paul locked up, but the gospel is locked up. The hope that we had is in chains. And if Paul is not free to go and preach and teach and establish churches, this thing is dead. Like, it's over. And so the Apostle Paul, you can kind of understand, is scrambling to write a letter to get it back to Philippi to beat Epaphroditus because if Epaphroditus presents this case, they're going to believe all hope is lost. The gospel's not going to advance. And Paul says, I want you to know that the things that have happened to me have actually served to advance the gospel, not hinder it. And so he writes this, and this is why it's in the beginning of the letter. And I think, in a way, this is what I thought about as I kept, kept studying this week. You guys ever see the movie Sandlot? Some of you? Sandlot? Like, I mean, it's a great baseball movie, and it, Carol and I were just talking about baseball season is upon us, and uh, you should watch the Sandlot if you never have. But in the end, there's this great, great scene where there's this young kind of uh, runt, <laughs> called Squints. He's just a little guy. He's got thick glasses. He's your typical underdog. And uh, Squints has a thing for a much older lifeguard, right? Uh, Wendy Peppercorn. Like, Wendy Peppercorn was all Squints could think about. Squints is like eight or nine. It's like Cohen's age. And so Wendy, every time he'd go to the pool, he would see her, and he was just struck by her beauty. And so Squints devises this plan, Squints fakes his own drowning. So he goes off the deep end. Everybody knows he can't swim. He jumps in and he has to be rescued. And of course, he does it on a day that Wendy Wendy Peppercorn is on duty. And so Wendy Peppercorn jumps in and he pretends he's drowning and she does CPR mouth to mouth on him. And as she is doing rescue breathing, Squints' eyes kind of open up and he cracks this huge smile. Like this is the moment I have waited for my entire life. And as I read this this week, all I could think about was Squints' smile. And the Apostle Paul must have had that same smile as he was penning this letter. Because he was worried that this church at Philippi was going to be so discouraged because they had heard these terrible circumstances that had came into his life. And they were, their faith in God was going to be tried because of it. Because they were going to say, why in the world would God chain the gospel? Like, we're on his team. Why is God working against us? And as the Apostle Paul writes this, I think he's got a squints-like smile because the thing that he had prayed for, the thing that he wanted more than anything in the world, has come to fruition because of his trials. You say, how? Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter number 1 and verse number 8. Romans 1 verse number 8. So we've already said the Apostle Paul is the greatest evangelist of all time. And he was, one of the things that made him great was he says in, in later in Romans that God had given him a desire to preach the gospel where it was not known. 
that that was like his number one objective in life was to get the gospel into all the parts of the world that had never heard it. And so one of those parts that he desired to get the gospel to was Rome. Now, Rome was one of the few places the Apostle Paul did not plant the church at Rome. Somebody else did. We don't know who, but someone did, and there was already a presence of believers there in Rome. And the Apostle Paul, in chapter number 1 and verse number 1, writing to the Romans in his greeting, says, Again, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, Declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. That's like, that's His goal. Among all nations, every single place, every tribe and tongue, the name of Jesus would be exalted, including you Romans who are called to belong to Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's where I want you to pay attention. Verse number eight. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Everybody knew about the church there at Rome. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking what? that somehow, by God's will, I may now last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. Right? Circumstances coming into his life, preventing him, stopping him, his desires to go to Rome in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. The Apostle Paul prayed without ceasing that God, some way in his sovereignty, would give him the opportunity to step foot in Rome and preach the gospel. That was his desire. In Romans, he expresses it. He says that the whole world has heard of their faith, and he has prayed and prayed that God would allow that to happen. And to this point, what? He's been prevented. Every single time he tries to get to Rome, something stands in his way. And you know, some of us are content to just let the sovereignty of God be. And so our prayer life starts to suffer, and we stop praying for things that God prevents. But that was not the pattern of the Apostle Paul. Even though God had prevented it, what does he do? He keeps praying for it. He keeps begging God. Like the importunate widow, remember the lady that knocks on the door late at night and needs bread and she won't go away? She just keeps knocking. It's like it's getting really annoying. Keep knocking. And the Apostle Paul keeps knocking. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. It's the desire of his heart to preach Christ where he has not been preached. Turn with me back to Philippians in the end of it. Chapter number four and verse number 22. This is why I say he had a squints-like smile. Because the Apostle Paul, remember, the church there, Philippi, they're like Squints' friends. They're freaking out. Gospel's drowning. Squints is a goner. He's gonna die. This is terrible. Worst day ever. They're filled with anxiety and worry. And the Apostle Paul opens up his eye and he's got a little squint. 
little smile. And this is, I think, the climax of the entire book. It's chapter number four and verse number 22. So I just feel like, I, I just, I don't know, I, I want you to feel the way that I felt when I read this. So just think it is so neat. Chapter 4, verse number 22. This is the big surprise, the grand finale. Oops. Awkward. It says this. All the saints greet you. What's the next words? Especially those of Caesar's household. Do you feel that? Like I felt like when I read that, I thought that's the greatest ending ever to a book. Because the church at Philippi is absolutely beside themselves. They think the gospel is not going to advance. They think it's locked up in chains with the Apostle Paul. And here the gospel and God has given the Apostle Paul the desire of his heart to preach in Rome. And the greatest missionary that's ever lived, the greatest evangelist, is changed, chained up to the Praetorian Guard, Caesar's very own elite forces. And he's chained to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 365 days a year and he's talking and he's sharing the gospel and the gospel is what that caesar is not lord that jesus is lord and at the name of jesus not caesar will every knee bow and every tongue confess and the goal of the apostle paul was to bring down caesar worship on its head and exalt jesus and he is in the very household of caesar doing it what a thing that God did in some really bad circumstances. And so in Philippians chapter number 1 and verse number 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that the things that have happened to me, all of these bad circumstances that have come into my life, have not hindered the gospel, but they've served to advance it, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. So that every soldier heard the message. Every soldier heard that Jesus is the true and rightful king, not Caesar. But not only the imperial guard, but who else? To all the rest. To every maid. To every chef or cook or server. Every single person in Caesar's household. The thing that Caesar hated the most was in his own household. The thing that threatened him the most in his kingdom was sleeping a few doors down because of the providence of God at work in the Apostle Paul's life. We see two things that happen as a result of these circumstances that have fallen on the Apostle Paul. The first is that the gospel is advanced. How is it advanced? It's advanced through the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I want you to get this phrase, imprisonment is for Christ. So, if you're a guard and you're chained to a prisoner, what do you think that prisoner talks about all the time? Anybody know? What do you think? How innocent they are, right? That's what any prisoner would talk about. How they don't deserve to be locked up. If you have a kid, it's the same conversation they have when you put them in timeout. Like, I don't deserve it. This is unfair. You don't know me. I didn't do anything to warrant being locked up in prison. But the soldiers came to a realization that for the Apostle Paul, that was true. 
Time and time again, he is judged not only by Felix, but then Festus and then Agrippa. And now he's appealed to go to Rome to Caesar. And on whose account? Who appealed to go to Rome? Paul did. Paul has chosen to take this all the way to Caesar. And what happened was that the guards realized that Paul is not there for any other reason but because Paul wants to be there. That's what it means to be imprisoned for Christ. That it wasn't never in all of the prison epistles does the Apostle Paul ever say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He's not. He's innocent. He refuses to be in subjection or to be held or bound by Rome. He says, I'm held and constrained and bound by the love of Christ, the gospel. This story in Philippians opens up with a jail breach, right? God miraculously opens up the jail doors. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He stayed. Doors wide open. He could go. Philippian jailer's about ready to fall on his sword because everybody's escaped. And he says, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. Agrippa later says, if it was not because this man appealed to Caesar, we could let him go. Paul was a prisoner, though, not of Rome, but of Jesus. It was the plan of the Apostle Paul and the providence of God that brought the gospel to Rome, to the capital, to Caesar's own household. You say, what does that have to do with the goodness of God? This is what it has to do. God, Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said, God is the one and only true alchemist. Do you remember what alchemy was? Alchemy was when you would, it was in the Middle Ages, they thought if they could find a way to turn lead into gold, like they, they would just be wealthy beyond their wildest dreams. If you could find a way to take something that was lead, that was base, that was useless, useless worthless, and turn it into gold, that you'd be filthy rich. And so they diligently studied. It was actually kind of the basis of our modern day chemistry. But Matthew Henry says God is the only one who is able to take things that are lead, things that are base, common, useless, and worthless, and take them through the fire, and out they become gold. And so the Apostle Paul in his circumstances, in his trials, the difficulties that that came into his life, he understood that God was in the process of being, he was the great alchemist who was taking those lead things, those evils, and working them for his good. The story of Joseph reminds us of this, that God is always good. Joseph's life was a train wreck. Joseph's brothers hated him. They threw him into a pit. He was held there. He was sold into slavery. He was betrayed by friends. He was mistried. He was wrongly accused, rotted in prison for a time. And finally, he becomes Pharaoh's second, his right-hand man. And you remember that as he's there, he begins to, to look out for the interests of Egypt. And he has a plan to save in case famine would come. And so he begins to put back grain. A great famine comes over all the land. And the brothers, the other sons of Jacob, come down because they're in need of grain, because they're starving, because there's a famine. And they stand before their little brother that they cast into slavery. And they're trembling for fear that he would want retribution or to punish them. And there's that great verse in the end of Genesis, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And that's the confidence that we have, church, is that whatever happens to us, that God is in the process of advancing the gospel. That no matter circumstances that happen, no matter what trials come, we are to count them all joy because they work the things of God in our life. Now, what about Hera? That doesn't always happen, does it? Sometimes we're able to catch a glimpse of how God is turning something that's lead into gold. We're able to see just kind of a a picture of what God might be doing in a trial. Something that gives us some bit of satisfaction that God is working it for our good and for his glory. But Hera died. Right? She left three little kids without a mom. Whatever God was doing and working in her life died with her. Where's, there's no, it's not always a happy ending. It's not always the story that was told in the book of Philippians about how now Caesar's household has the gospel. It's not always rah-rah. What do we do then? Look a, bit, a little bit later on. We're going to jump just for a second. Philippians 1 and verse number 18 What do we do when we can't catch a glimpse of God working it out for our good? This is the Apostle Paul's secret. He says, What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And what does that mean? You know, it's interesting. This is the only place in the entire New Testament that this word is translated something other than salvation. It's salvation. So the question is, what is he anticipating that he'll be saved from? Is it that he'll be let free and that he'll be saved from being a prisoner in Rome? What does the word salvation mean? That's his hope, is that even though I can't see where God is taking this circumstance, this trial, this evil that's coming to my life, I don't see any glimpse of how God is taking that piece of lead and turning it it into gold. But I know that if nothing else, God is working it out for my salvation. The word here in the Greek, salvation comes in three different tenses. So we have past tense, present tense, and future tense. So when we talk about the word salvation, a lot of times we use it in the church in past tense. I was saved. I got saved. What does that refer to? It means when we go from being unrighteous to righteous, when our sin is transferred to Jesus and atoned for by his substitutionary death on the cross, and we in turn get his righteousness, God in that moment that we place our faith and trust in him declares us righteous. We are saved at that point, past tense. But then you and I are in the process every single day of being saved or what we would call sanctified. That God is saving us and rooting out the evil and the sin in our lives and working the good things of God in place of it. And so every single one of us today is in that process of being saved, of being sanctified, progressing in our walk so that we become more and more like Jesus. That's why in the great chapter in Romans 8, 28, he says, all things work together to good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. And we love to stop there and we think that means everything works out, right? My marriage, it's going to work out. My rebellious kid, that's going to work out. My bad financial situation, that's going to work out. That's not what it means. 
He tells us later in 29 what it means. For those whom he foreknew, he also did predestinate to do what? What's the goal? To be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. So the apostle Paul says, no matter what trial comes into my life, sometimes I get to see a glimpse of it, how God is using it for his good and for his glory, for my good. I get to see a corner, just a piece of the display of glory knowing that that thing of lead is being turned into gold. But even if I don't get to see that, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, even if I don't get delivered from the fire, even if salvation doesn't come in this lifetime, even if the doors of the jail don't open and I walk free, I am being saved. I will be delivered or I will be delivered. Isn't that beautiful? And that's the confidence that you and I have. That whatever afflicts us, whatever comes about, will never in no way ever hinder the work of God. That He is sovereign. That nothing stops the advance of the gospel. But the gospel must not only advance to all the parts of the earth, it also must advance in your heart. And sometimes it takes the trials and the the evil of this world and coming into contact with those chains For the gospel to advance in our own hearts and do its work and save us and sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, this will turn out ultimately for my deliverance. That the gospel would take root in my heart and that I would be saved above all. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. So I've got some questions that I I have for you this morning. So God is the great alchemist. And so what is it in your life? What trial has come? What evil is being wrought that has caused you to doubt the goodness of God? As I look back over my life, there have been plenty of times where it felt like God was working against me, that my desire was to do good, to do his will, and I felt like God stood against it. Maybe it was, maybe it is in your marriage. Some of you have difficult marriages. I think we need to say that from the pulpit often. That my wife and I, one of the things when we were we're first married it was a struggle it was hard and we felt like we were kind of alone in that because everybody in the church seems like they've got it together and our first year is like we want to kill somebody we're we're watching you know how to get away with murder on netflix and kind of looking suspiciously at each other and uh it was rough it was rough and uh life was hard then for both of us not just it wasn't like it was hard because she's so terrible it was hard for her because i was terrible we're both terrible And you know what? Some of you are there. Some of your marriages are really, really tough right now. And they're just filled with with strife and conflict. It's not what you thought it was or was going to be. I think for a long long time, I thought that when I got married, marriage was going to save me. That's what I lived for was I needed another, I needed something, a better half, something to complete me. And then I got married and I said, okay, I want to take this back. We struggled in that. And God has worked amazing things in our life. We're not there anymore. We're able to see, we started to see it then. I started to see, you know what, there's good in this. 
My wife is not like me. She's very disciplined. She doesn't leave her clothes on the floor. Um, She's structured and organized, and she has a goal, and she does it. I like to say she's the string to my kite. And I started to see the glimpse of good in this, that God wasn't just bringing conflict into my life to punish me, but this conflict was making me a better person, that he was sanctifying me in my marriage, in a difficult marriage in the beginning. But the reality is some of your marriages will never get better. That they just are what they are. That you're never going to see that glimpse of good. That that piece of lead that is your spouse is never going to be turned into gold. That's just truth. That's life. Some of you are facing debilitating chronic diseases right now. And the reason we call them chronic in the medical field is because they don't get better. They get worse. There's no deliverance from that. And some of you, you can pray like the Apostle Paul, and we would keep praying with you that God would deliver you from this present ailment. But the reality is, is that many people go their entire lives, they never get delivered from diabetes or from cancer or from whatever whatever other wickedness comes in. You say, what do I do in that situation where I don't see the glimpse of any present good? How do I handle that? How do I continue to have joy in my marriage that is a trial? How do I have joy in my chronic disease or my financial difficulties or my bankruptcy or my loss of employment? The same way the Apostle Paul did, by knowing that those trials work the things of God. So that James 2 says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Knowing this, the trying of your faith works patience. But here's the thing, don't give up. Don't try to shortcut it. Let patience have its perfect work. You may be perfect and entire, lacking nothing. The chronic disease, the troubled marriage, the struggles and the trials of this world make us more like Jesus. And if your goal is in alignment with the Apostle Paul, that I will stand before him someday and be pure and blameless, that hard marriage is working the things of God. That financial trouble is working the things of God. And what does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 8, that glorious chapter? He says, I believe that the trials and the sufferings of this present world are not even to be compared with the glory that someday will be revealed in us. So this morning, I'm going to ask every head bowed, every eye closed as we wrap this up. Christian, what what thing of lead are you carrying around today? What thing are you chained to? What is it that has discouraged you and brought disappointment conflict, pain. Would you commit it to Jesus today? The great alchemist, the one who's able to take things of lead and turn them into gold, the one who's able to accomplish his purpose in whatever trial and tribulation you're going through. Maybe it's committing that chronic disease, that marriage, whatever it is. Would you commit it to him this morning? Would you like the Apostle Paul continue to pray that somehow, some way, God would deliver you from that thing? If you're here and you have a marriage that is struggling, pray. Pray for it. Intercede on behalf of it. Grab hold of God who is sovereign like Jacob did and wrestle with him. In this moment, just, just wrestle, fight, claw, plead the grace of God. 
but then also a believer. God is sovereign. And if he chooses not to make the marriage better, and he chooses not to deliver you from that physical ailment, or whatever trial has come into your life, rejoice. Because he is delivering you. That that trial that works the things of God is making in you a new heart that loves the things of God. You're becoming more like Jesus through that trial. Embrace it. Take up your cross and follow him. Life is hard. Life is so hard. But we have a God who, is, who knows what it's like to be afflicted in every way. We have a God who has suffered. A God that knows pain. But he also knows the glory that will be revealed in us. Endure the cross. For it's the cross that saves us. That we might be raised up to walk in newness of life. That we might be resurrected at the end days to glory. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for it's just how it spoke to my heart this week. God, the reality is trials will come in every single one of our lives. God, I pray that like the Apostle Paul, we would know what to do with them. That God, when they come, we would rejoice in them. That we would not be distraught or downtrodden or that we would not be discouraged or abandon our faith, but we would cling to you in those moments. God, I thank you that you're near to the brokenhearted. That this morning, whoever's struggling, God, we know you're close. And we plead your grace and we ask for your mercy. And God, give us your strength that we might endure the things that come into our lives. And we might see their good and bring you glory. And it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.